Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you subscribe to The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, two longtime friends who have had this podcast since 1973. Yeah, that's how long. It was even before podcasts they were having this. These guys spent their whole life arguing with each other. And now we just record it and they go at it. They talk about everything pop culture. It is one of the most popular pop culture podcasts, especially valuable during Game of Thrones season. But uh, they'll argue about movies, music, TV, you name it. The Watch, one of the best pop culture podcasts on the internets. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Thanks for listening. Sometimes I say tuning in. I, I kind of, in my mind, in my old school mind, I always feel radio. But this is a podcast. You don't actually tune in. What do you do to a podcast, really? You just, it kind of, a podcast, I guess, drops and you just listen to it. I don't know. This is my old man musings. So on the show today, David Epstein, who has a book coming out called Range, which is fascinating, you guys. It's really in my wheelhouse of stuff that I like, you know, in the Malcolm Gladwell type of uh, category. The Sports Gene was his previous book, which was very cool, too. But uh, Range comes out in May. David and I have a really, really fun talk about it. So much stuff to cover in there. So um, hang on and listen to that. But I have to tell you, today is uh, Wednesday. Kaya, what is the date? Is it the 11th or the 10th? Today's the 10th, April 10th. Guys, my world is shook right now. So last night, Magic Johnson of the Lakers, you know I'm a big Laker fan. Sorry, I can't even talk about politics. Trump is still blowing up the world. I can't even, I can't focus on that stuff because the Lakers, I don't know what's going on. Magic quits last night in the most weird rambling press conference I've ever seen in my life. And like my whole world started crumbling in front of me. I'm thinking, okay, the Lakers had a tough season. But, you know, we'll be better next year. Now, I don't know what to believe, you guys. This is existential crisis number one. You know, it's not North Korea. Sorry, it's not Syria. I know it's really bad over there. But the Lakers going down, you guys have to understand, this is this is not good. You know, on one hand, a lot of people felt maybe Magic didn't do a good job. And maybe his leaving will open the door to have somebody who really wants to focus on this. I think Magic has just so many interests. You're not going to get me to slam magic. That's my boy. So I just think he had too many interests. So somebody good can come in. But here's the bad thing. You guys don't understand. Our fearless leader here, Bill Simmons, has so much schadenfreude for the Lakers. He loves to hate the Lakers as much as I love to hate the Celtics and the Patriots, by the way. Love to hate them. But I think his love-hate is actually even more intense than mine, which I couldn't believe, which is one of the reasons why we get along, because we love-hate each other so much, right? This gives him... Way too much, way too much to hold over my head right now. And I don't like it. I'll be honest with you. I honestly don't like it. I'm kind of avoiding him today as I'm here. I don't want to see him. I don't want to see his face. I don't want to see his smug expression. You know, I want to wait till those Celtics go down in flames in the playoffs. And then we can have a talk about magic. Because this is exactly the type of thing that he wants to see. He wants to see the Lakers go down. You know, but here's the thing. We're coming back. We're going to come back stronger, y'all. This is me pumping up myself. Because I'm really, I'm scared, you guys. I don't know what's going to happen. I know, I'm all over the place. I apologize. But um, it's just one of those weird days. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to the interview. And I'm just going to let this whole Laker thing just sink into my soul for a while. And I think, uh, you know, the next pod will catch up on all the world stuff. 
um, that's going to hell in a handbasket. Because that's why you guys tune in to kind of go over what's exactly in that handbasket. So anyhow, David Epstein coming up. The book is Range. It's really, really a fun book. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this talk. Be right back. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Very excited. This is uh, so much fun to me to have these types of interviews with uh, author David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, many of you remember a couple years ago, but now he's out with a new book called Range, which is uh, just about, just it really, I think, is about behavior and how it's created and formed and our observations about it. David, welcome to Black on the Air. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to, to join you. So you're one of those people out there that, you know, has this ability to put things into words that we kind of I see out there we haven't quite collected and then we read it and we go oh man I wish I wish I had been able to see it like this you know and even uh, uh, your book Range uh, does this in a way which is really kind of interesting explain what Range means to you and why you wrote this book you know it actually kind of came out of you mentioned the sports scene it sort yeah. of came out of that where uh-huh. after that book I, I was invited to have a debate with Malcolm Gladwell at yes. the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference right and part of the debate went into this issue of sort of what is the best way to develop expertise, basically, in in whatever you're thinking about. Yes, and and he had his own theories, of course, yes. Yep, Mm -hmm. and so I knew he was going to argue because of the 10,000-hour rule and so on about the importance of a a head start in very technical training and early specialization. And leading up to that debate, I didn't want to get crushed by him knowing how clever he is. (laughs) Um, So I did a lot of homework and aggregated all these studies that look at how athletes who go on to become elite really develop. And it turned out that actually the norm is that they do a whole wide range of things early, learn about themselves, learn general skills, learn about their interests and their abilities, and systematically delay specializing until later. So I called this the Roger versus Tiger question. I love that. They usually develop like Tiger Woods early, or like Roger Federer, whose mother wouldn't allow him... uh, you know, to focus. And, and when actually when his coaches wanted to bump him up a level, he wouldn't do it because he wanted to stay and talk WWE wrestling with his friends at, at the lower level after, after training. It's fantastic. Yeah. And so when Malcolm, after that, when we came off stage, he kind of went, you know, what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. And we became running buddies after that. That was the first time we met yeah. and would sort of talk about it on our own time. And I realized I wanted to see whether the Roger or the Tiger pattern was more normal in other domains outside of sport. Mm-hmm. And so range came to embody this sort of concept of personal breadth and experimentation and gaining a variety of skills before you become narrow, sort of expanding your range, Mm -hmm. which turns out in many of the domains that I think people most want to become expert in is actually the way to go, even as people are increasingly pushed to specialize more and more and more, Mm -hmm. that expanding your range um, is sort of an imitable benefit. And it turns out that basing what we think about skill development and behavior on golf is actually not not such a good way to go, even yeah. though that's been the extrapolation made in a lot of books. I think because Tiger was such a powerful example of that, and he was such a ridiculous success story, you know, that it yeah. seemed, I mean, it was so intoxicating to view Earl Woods as this master, you know, maker of a golf prodigy and to and to follow the narrative in that way. And I love how your book, in different ways, in different chapters, it breaks up different types of narratives, you know, that seem like they should be right. But, you know, you kind of deconstruct them in a way. But that one is very powerful because the example was so blatant, you know. And it's nice to put Roger Federer to the side of that 
as, well, hold on a second, everybody, <laughs> you know, to use that, it really makes you, you can't ignore the Roger Federer example either, you know, which I think is awesome to put them side by side. And that turns out to be the norm, the Roger pattern. So that was kind of my question, which one of these is typical? Yeah. And it turns out that the Roger pattern is typical. And again, one of the reasons I use Tiger is because there is no single, you know, single best path to success or fulfillment. And Tiger, like you said, is incredible, but but, you know, we go on YouTube and watch him at two years old on television hitting and no, nobody knows the development stories of people like Roger Federer because they're less spectacular, even though they're the norm. And over the course of range, part of the argument I make is that, you know, there have been a lot of sort of books in my area, the sort of performance sciences that use the Tiger Woods example. It's usually Tiger Woods and Mozart um, to right. say, this is how we should think about every endeavor. And it turns out that the Mozart story isn't really the one that's been portrayed. And the Tiger story is unique because golf turns out to be like kind of an exceptionally poor model of most things that people actually want to learn in the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's non-dynamic. It's more of like an industrial task where you try to repeat the same thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. Mm-hmm. So early specialization may or may not work in golf. There's not a lot of data. I think the jury's out, but it, it's not good for extrapolating to all these other more kind of, um, you know, cognitively complex, dynamic skills that, that people want to learn in the world. Yeah, it's it, it's very, yeah, golf has way too many parts to it, you know, to make that provable. In fact, Jack Nicholas, who Tiger Woods modeled himself after, played a lot of sports before he chose golf, like at about yeah. 16. You know, he really didn't yeah. choose that as a way to go. So he's actually a better example of the guy Tiger idolized. Yeah, I mean, that that's the norm. That's totally yeah. the norm. And again, there's not a ton of, Interestingly, I couldn't find a ton of data in golf, but if you look at most other sports, that is really the norm. You see this sort of, um, if, if you plot these, like I aggregated data from a whole bunch of studies in the introduction of the book, and you see this graph where athletes who are elite spend more time in so-called deliberate or hyper-focused practice than athletes who plateau at lower levels. But if you follow their entire development, you actually see that they do less of that early on, and they, they sort of cross over in their later years. They systematically delay specialized. And in your first chapter, The Cult of the Head Start, you kind of deal with this in a different way. You bring up the chess example. But I also think Mm -hmm. that the chess example, to me, also kind of correlates with, I'll call it the education example, where, Mm -hmm. like, I I feel like we're in a culture now. I felt it when we were putting our kids in school, where there's so much emphasis on kids being tested like at four to get into these hyper-competitive schools and everything, you know, where they're going to be around other alpha students rather than a whole range of students, yeah. you know, it seems yeah. to be a correlation there to me. No, a- absolutely. I mean, I think you, you hit on it in one of the chapters, the fourth chapter sort of about education. And, and, and it's unfortunate because it turns out that, that testing is actually one of the best ways to, to teach people things. Mm-hmm. But what you want to do is test them before they're ready and getting things wrong actually primes your brain to, to then learn them. Mm-hmm. But now we're used to testing being used just for evaluation which I think is a real travesty because it's pretty clear, I think, anywhere you look, and this goes for sports and academics, uh-huh. the earlier you start tracking people, the more likely you put the wrong person in the wrong slot because you, you don't really know their, the cross-section of their development that you're looking at has actually nothing to do with their trajectory. Uh-huh. And the more you're sort of limiting their exposure uh, to things in a way that um, will diminish what, what economists call match quality. So I have a, a chapter later in the book that talks about match quality, which yeah. is the degree of fit, basically, between who you are, your abilities, your interests, and what it is that you do. I thought that was and, a really great term, by the way. 
you know, I'd never seen that put in those words, you know. Not my term, but but mm-hmm. but I'm glad that you enjoyed it. But yeah. this, the more you track people, and the earlier you do it, the more you inhibit their ability to to learn about their own potential match quality. So I think that early testing, for a variety of reasons, is not great. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think there's also a real detrimental aspect to it in terms of how people figure out what it is they're interested in and what they want to do. And you think about young kids, like their experience is already so constrained by mm-hmm. what they've been exposed to. And you want to constrain it even more by kind of tracking them into these very curated environments. It just doesn't make any sense if you look at the science of personal development. Why do you think that happens? Honestly, I think, I think there are two main reasons. I think one is that there are systems that are this, again, what I call the cult of the head start. There are systems that are preying on our natural and usually well-meaning inclination to give our kids a head start, mm-hmm. basically. And we cannot conceive of the idea that getting them ahead right now um, doesn't mean setting them on a trajectory that will keep them ahead forever, even though, again, th- this is one of the main purposes of the book, that I go through domain after domain after domain, showing that early um, trajectory has nothing to do with where you end up. So I think some of it is is you know, our own feeling of wanting to do the best uh, for ourselves and for our kids by giving them a head start. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 in the education chapter, I write about this pervasive fade-out effect where kids are given these sort of academic head starts and they, and they disappear. Mm. So that doesn't turn out to be a, a trajectory that, that holds. But also, the second aspect, I think, is the same thing we see in youth sports, right? Where, mm-hmm. like, the second graders' AAU basketball championships where they're playing on 10-foot rims is in no way in the interest of the development of those kids. It's in the interest of the people for whom those kids are customers. <laughs> yes. And they say, we want to keep them out of the other sports, and we want to make sure that if they don't do the second-grade traveling team, then they can't be on the third-grade traveling team because these are our customers. And like when I lived in Brooklyn until recently, there was a U6 travel soccer team that met across the street from me. Mm. I don't think anybody who stops to think believes that a group of five-year-olds can't find good enough competition that's in a of nine million people. That is, that's but, crazy. Yeah, but there are other interests in it, right? The, the kids develop the way you develop the best ten-year-old is not the way you develop the best twenty-year-old. But for the the coaches and sort of business owners who are only worried about those ten-year-olds, you know, their interests are not aligned with the long-term development of, of the of the individual. Yeah, to me, there's also I think there's a culture of the best, which I think is kind of pernicious in this, and and people obsess with the best of something, you know. Mm-hmm. being better than someone else rather than a person getting the best out of themselves, you know. Like I always told my kids when they're growing I said, I guys, I, I want you to know, your dad, I never expect you to be the best, but I expect you to do your best, you know, yeah. or yeah. to or to be be your best person. But you don't have to beat people to do that, you know. If you do, so what, you know, but but you can do your best. You know, I was making distinction between what best means, you know. I think that's really. I'm a new father. And I, yeah, I there you go. That. A little, little bit of dad advice. Yeah. Well, it takes the pressure yeah. off of them. It's because there's a false competition, I believe, in academics and some of these things. Sports has a more direct competition, but it's compartmentalized. You yeah. know what that is. You know, which is why guys yeah. can hang out when they're not actually playing, but when they're playing, they can compete. You know, you know what that is. You know, but this whole notion that parents impose on kids about constantly competing, I think, is a bit pernicious, because a lot of that is, I feel, is projection from the parents. I mean, I think you're hitting on something 
really profound there. Where I, I certainly have no problem, you not know, the oh, college athlete, I have no problem with competition and the way it brings out the best yes. in people, but sometimes. Um, but I think you're hitting on something profound there in what I see, you know, in some of the domains I was, I was researching and writing about and also just in the world around me this pervasive idea that everything is a zero sum game, yes, you know, exactly. whether you're talking about business or sports or the government. Yeah. And I don't think we can like have a society that's oriented toward everyone's optimal development. If we view everything as a zero sum game. Yes. And so kind of the middle chapters of the book, like the one, the chapter titled flirting with your possible selves. I mean, one of the things, the things I was trying to get to there was instead of viewing these small number of goals when we don't have much experience and viewing them as zero sum competition, Mm -hmm. what you really do is zigzag bounce from experience to experience. Say, what are the options in front of me right now? What do I want to learn? What am I interested in? What's the best opportunity right now? And in a year from now, maybe I'll change. And you zigzag your way until you triangulate yourself to a place where sort of you alone can succeed, right? Like I I was a grad student in geology. And when I ended up as a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, it turned out that my science background was the thing that that made me unique so that I didn't have to compete on the same ground mm-hmm. as everyone else who was lined up to try to be like the NFL correspondent. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and my, my sense is it's probably similar in your career. Like a lot of the things you've done weren't things that you could have seen from 10 or 20 years out to say, this is what I'll be doing. But you accumulated these experiences and found ground where, you know, you alone can, can make some certain contributions that other people can't. So right. there is no zero sum competition because you're making a unique contribution. You're on your own ground. Yeah, also the way that you prepare yourself for something isn't always the same as someone else might. You know, of course, the Tiger Rogers is very blatant in that and explicit. Like in my business, like acting class and those sorts of things, it's it's only one form of preparation. But there are so (laughs) many different ways you bring yourself into like showbiz, you know. And for me, Mm -hmm. it seemed like when I was growing up— I always felt people judge multiple disciplines as kind of a deficit when you're young, you know, mm-hmm. like you were, people were more rewarded for excelling in one particular thing, like the star basketball mm-hmm. player or mm-hmm. football player. And me, mm-hmm. I was always interested in a lot of things. I did magic tricks, you know, I played sports, I was on the debate team, you know, like a lot of different things. And, you know, people would say, Jack of all trades, master of none. I said, how about fun in a lot of things, <laughs> you know, interested in a yeah. lot of different things. And when you're older, you get rewarded for multi for multiple interests, it seems like. That's right. It's kind of crazy, right? It's something that we yeah. sort of extinguish early, but then it's a huge advantage yes. later. And even that quote <laughs> you mentioned, the jack of all trades, master of none, like we're so obsessed with that that we've forgotten that the way the quote actually ends is mm-hmm. oftentimes better than master of one. Like we've yeah, just locked that off because like it doesn't fit with our preconceived notions. But like you said, these things, it's so funny to hear you say that, you know, about magic and those things. Because yeah. early in the book, I write about how scientists in general have about the same number of of hobbies outside of their work, like serious hobbies as the general public, but scientists who are in national academies have many more hobbies and scientists who've won the Nobel prize are about 22 times more likely than other scientists to have the amateur magicians or writers or musicians or artists. And there was this, this quote I love from Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the Spanish father of modern neuroscience and Nobel laureate, where he tries to identify the people who are the future innovators. And he says that they have all these, these, these variety of interests. And he says to him who observes them from afar, it looks like they're diluting their energies right. when in fact they're reinforcing and strengthening Completely. them. Like all these things come around and, and make you unique and become strengths later on. And it sounds like that, that kind of happened for you. Well, yeah, I always feel like 
you have to have stuff coming in before stuff can go out. You know, it's a crude way to say it. You know? uh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You no, know. I like that. That's a really good way to put it. Well, as a writer, I say I have to have something to write about. Um, I think it was Fran Leibowitz who said there's no such thing as a as a prodigy writer. You know, you have to have something to write about. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. be six years mm-hmm. old and suddenly you're a brilliant writer. You, you have to have life experience. That's what makes it different from everything else. You have to have an observation of the world that has been lived in. You know, there has to be some wisdom associated with that. And, and there's there's also a benefit to... I think one thing that we've lost a lot is free time, you know, and how important free time is. Yeah. Einstein was somebody who came up with the theory of relativity through wandering, through his mind wandering, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> basically through what you might call free time, you know. That's right. And that's such like a pervasive thing in, I went through in the reporting of the book, I went through a lot of the Nobel acceptance speeches, just mm-hmm. reading them. And it was kind of funny because if you look at them in recent years, Every year, someone, a scientist who gets it says, well, you know, I I never could have done the work that I did today because it took a lot of just like going off track and like having conversations with people at lunch. And now everyone brings lunch to their desk and Uh doesn't interact with people from other disciplines. And it's so, it's so interesting to see that said over and over and over in all these Nobel speeches. I say, well, I, I couldn't do the work today, you know, today that I did then, which like maybe should raise some alarm. Yes. And I love how a lot of these companies that are considered the innovative companies are like producing these work farms almost where everything is on their lot. Like they don't want you to ever leave. You know, <laughs> like It's yeah. like, hold on a second. You know, isn't it a benefit to get away from this and come back and offer something of value by that, by that journey, you know, as opposed to just be in the bubble of the place, you know, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Exactly. So like toward the very end of range, I mentioned, Bill Gore, who started the company that invented Gore-Tex, and he founded it after his observation that companies would do their most innovative work in crisis because all the disciplinary boundaries and, like, strictures would go out the window and people would, like, grab coffee and try to figure out what to do. Right. And so he had this phrase, like, real real innovation happens in the carpool. So he tried to to kind of make his his company copy that. And on the opposite, you have this, this Japanese concept of inamuri, which is falling asleep at work, which is looked upon kindly because it means, well, you know, you haven't gotten up from your desk in so long. That, I like, love that. Asleep. And I think that is, uh, it just goes against everything we know. If that were the way to go, and that's what the research on creativity showed, then I would talk about that, but it's just not. So it's kind of yeah. maddening that we keep going in that direction. It's like yeah. you almost start to wonder, like, why are, why are people doing this research if, if like, nobody's listening? You know? So well, I'm hoping to help people listen a little bit. Yeah, and you had two striking examples that I thought were fascinating, you know, and I really want to delve into it more. Uh, one was, I can't remember his name off the bat, but it was the, um, who's the guy in the late 60s who talked about famine and had his view of... of uh, Paul, Paul, Paul Ehrlich. Yes, Ehrlich, right. And his views were very apocalyptic about what was going to happen. And was um, he was um, arguing with someone else who had a different point of view. But uh, but I like how – and the other example I was going to give was the, the uh, Nintendo example, which is fascinating. How mm-hmm. in the Nintendo example – let me jump to that real quick – is uh, everything that you think – company should do nintendo did not do and one of the most fascinating ones was going backwards with technology that you talk about 
and making something becomes wildly popular. But it, no one in, in their right mind at a company trying to do something would think in those ways. And it's always these innovative ways that push things forward. And that's fascinating to me because, you know, it's always the counterintuitive that seems to win, yet we never think to do the counterintuitive. I love that Nintendo example, one, because I, I grew up with Nintendo, but also right. they're still doing it. They're still using this. Amazing. What yeah. this, this inventor, the guy who was hired, you know, because he wasn't that good at electronics and couldn't get a job in Tokyo. So he got hired as a maintenance man in, yes. in a smaller company in Kyoto, Nintendo, which at the time was making playing cards only, um, and would start like fiddling with machines. And since he wasn't so good at cutting edge electronics, he would just combine old technologies, things that he did know how to use that were very cheap. Um, like at a time when remote controlled cars were very expensive, yeah, he stripped out all of like the radio channels and made a car with one channel that could only turn left, but was like 10 times cheaper than other cars. And that like popularized radio controlled cars. Right. And he would always just use old technologies that people had abandoned, but that he could understand and that were cheap. So he developed this philosophy he called lateral thinking with withered technology. I love that lateral thinking with withered technology. <laughs> That's yeah. great. And it was, it was, I had to have a bunch of, um, none of his work appears in English, so I had to have a bunch of it translated from Japanese, mm-hmm. but a lot of translators agreed on that translation. So I didn't, I wasn't the first one to, to come up with that, that phrase translation. And what he meant was taking technologies that are cheap, already really well understood and not putting, pushing the cutting edge, but you have many more opportunities by combining them in new ways. Mm-hmm. And so he sort of invented handheld gaming when he saw a businessman, a Japanese so-called company man riding a bullet train and playing with a calculator and said, hey, can I make games that, that fit in your hand? And, and one thing leads to another, and his sort of magnum opus uh, was a handheld game that was, you know, would have had a cutting-edge processor 20 years earlier, had four grayscale colors that smeared across the screen when, when graphics moved quickly. Meanwhile, their competitors were coming out with these, you know, big, bright color handhelds, and, and that turned out to be called the Game Boy. Uh, and was the best-selling console of the 20th century yeah. with this incredibly outdated technology. And, and Nintendo's kept going with that philosophy. Like, the Wii was old technology, mm. but they recognized that the barrier to adoption wasn't how cutting-edge the graphics were, but the complexity of gameplay. And I saw Nintendo recently has some product out where, like, you build stuff with cardboard, you know? Yes. It's like they've embraced <laughs> this philosophy of you're not trying to manufacture the greatest screen. Like, that's kind of does become a zero-sum game. You know, there's, there's one winner for that, but there's so many more opportunities to take this incredible library of human knowledge and, and be broad and have range and combine them in ways nobody's thought about before. It's very interesting to me. That one, that, there's a, uh, so much unpacking that can go on with that. In fact, uh, President Trump said something that I'm very, um, <laughs> I don't agree with the president, let's just say, on most things. But he said something where I said, you know, this isn't as crazy as it sounds. And he was he gave kind of a an awkward um, um, kind of look at what happened in this plane crash where he said, you know, sometimes there's too much technology about it. And it, I think the way he said it wasn't quite proper. But he, I feel like he wasn't completely wrong about that notion where— there is a point, I feel, where there's a max technology threshold, <laughs> you know, where something or let's say a max improvement threshold where something it feels like they're manufacturing something from their point of view where they're improving it, but it doesn't actually improve it. It just makes it either more complex or more technologically different, but it's not necessarily an improvement, you know. And that's why I was fascinated with this take on 
you can use something simpler and improve it. Like improvement doesn't always necessarily mean going forward. Does that make sense? Totally. No, I mean, in, in fact, there's in, in that lateral thinking with Wither Technology chapter, there's a guy who does research on types of innovators using patent data. And what he finds is that basically the contributions of sort of these hyper-specialists where you're, you really are like pushing the technology mm-hmm. forward in complexity um, kind of peaked around and after World War II and mm. has somewhat been, not, not that it's unimportant, it's just been declining in prevalence since then, it kind of peaked again in the 80s, uh, you know, when, the, when we were entering a knowledge economy, and now it's tailing off, and the bigger contributions are coming from these inventors who have worked across this, like, huge array of patent classes and end up combining something from one class with another rather than pushing a single area forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the reasons he thinks that's happening is because this very kind of complex technical knowledge one, not that many people can use it, but it gets disseminated very quickly anyway, so you don't need that much of it. And that there's so much now that there are way more opportunities for combining these older things than for pushing this smaller number of things um, forward. And in many cases, you're likely to be more successful when you're using like well-characterized things and combining them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interestingly, there was a very similar finding uh, that I wrote about for comic book creators. I like the one of the, these these researchers who studied the value, commercial value of comic books found right. that what predicted how valuable someone's comic books were going to be and how likely they were to create a blockbuster, most of the predictions they made were wrong. It wasn't years of experience. It wasn't the number of comics you'd made. It wasn't even the resources of your publisher. There were two things that predicted. One was not being like grossly overworked, basically. <laughs> um, and the yeah. other was the number of different genres mm. that you had experience in. And and you couldn't recreate that just with a team. So you, in, it was fine to have a team. So a team that had people who had worked in six different genres and came together was better than an individual who had only worked in one genre. Mm. But an individual who had worked in six genres themselves was even better than a team that had people who had worked in six genres separately. So there's something about this range being embodied in an individual that allows them to kind of make connections across things that, that otherwise aren't made. What's fascinating about all of these examples is, to me, it points out how human behavior is something that continues to be unknowable <laughs> and yet is right in front. It's like hiding in plain sight. It feels like one of those yeah. things to me. And in one of the areas, I feel that people don't give enough credit to behavior is economics. You know, people, yeah. both on the right and the left, I feel, always quantify economics in hard um, for one of a better word, factual terms or mathematical terms or ideological terms, you know. But to me, without human behavior, economics is just math. But the reason why economics is so hard to understand is because behavior is attached to it. But no one ever okay. gives behavior the benefit that, you know, the, the the props that it deserves in that, you know. That's what, like, stock market crashes are based on behavior, that's right. Right. When we talk about like efficient markets, right? If the markets yes. are really that efficient, then I, I think I saw a calculation that if markets were so efficient and everyone were so rational, right. then like the Black Monday crash statistically shouldn't have happened even if like the history of the world were repeated a billion times or something. Right. But um, human behavior, right? And, and this is so obvious. Like it's crazy that we don't think about it because we can model people like these rational actors, mm-hmm. but then you go into the grocery store and there's a million kinds of cereal and you might buy one because it has a cartoon tiger on it. <laughs> yes. And is. what does that have to do with you being a rational actor? No, it's, right. of course it's like, and you know, and, and you're right. And I think the economics 
to me, the most important insights are about the human behavior and where it deviates Absolutely. from what the perfect, right. um, you know, economic theory would say. And that's, I kind of tried to take some of that on with, with Kahneman in, in chapter one and talking mm-hmm. about like how most human decision-making is actually really imperfect, which is why repetitive experience in many cases doesn't, doesn't perfect it. And in many cases leads to confidence, but not actual, you know, good judgment. Yeah. Which is interesting. And, uh, can you talk about, uh, you have a chapter, The Trouble with Too Much Grit. And um, can you talk about that? And, and, and let's talk about what grit means. Yeah, so this, this psychological concept of grit, you know, most, most famously associated with a psychologist Angela Duckworth, mm-hmm. is um, a measure that comes from a survey that basically asks a number of questions that try to gauge um, your your perseverance, you know, your resilience to setbacks, yes, uh, and also your kind of focused passion, how much you will stick to something that you're interested in and, mm-hmm. and not waver and kind of change the things you're interested in. And it's it's become very popular because one, I mean, it's it's incredibly intuitively appealing, but mm-hmm. also um, Angela and, and colleagues showed things like that, you know, in orientation for the U.S. Military Academy, where um, students go through what's called beast barracks, where it's like six weeks of really intense physical challenges. And, right. and they're basically being taken from high school students and, and oriented as soldiers. And it's a fragile time and some of them drop out. And she right. found that grit was a better predictor of who would persist than uh, was, you know, all the other types of scores that that uh, West Point, the military academy gathers. And that's really interesting. And I think that's really valuable. And the same held it had some predictive value for how well students in the finals of the national spelling bee do and how, what grades, um, you know, Ivy league students get and things like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it, it still explained only a very, very small part. I think, you know, in statistical terms, usually between like one and 6% of the variance in, in performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think one of the ways, and she's written very thoughtfully about this in yeah. academic papers. I think in many cases it's gotten extrapolated beyond what she ever intended by people who, who probably haven't actually read any of the papers. I actually had a conversation with Angela at a dinner once. We I, <laughs> we talked for about an hour because I have my own philosophies about stuff, and I was kind of challenging the whole grit notion. But anyway, I, I just like doing that anyway because I'm a contrarian. But, uh. <laughs> As well you should, but I mean, it, it, it needs that challenge because it's yeah. so popular. And like school systems are testing kids for, for grit, right? Yes, but exactly. What, what I think is important to recognize is that all of the, the cases where these studies have been done are people who have been selected, like they are already in the finals of the National Spelling Bee. Right. So the, the goal right in front of them is very clearly defined for them. Mm-hmm. And should someone really be punished if like memorizing the spellings of root words turns out that they tried that and it turns out that that's maybe not their interest and they orient towards something else? Mm-hmm. So, so for someone like me, like when I was a college runner, I, I was a walk-on and ended up a university record holder. So I, I won this hilarious award for the athlete who uh, achieved significant athletic success in the face of unusual challenge and difficulty, mm-hmm. right? Like my unusual challenge and difficulty just being that I stunk at first. It wasn't <laughs> like I had cancer. Um, but yet on the grit scale, I scored in the 50th percentile because mm-hmm. my interests are constantly changing. I went from science grad school, right, to being a sports writer, to doing these other things. And so I think in the more open world where the, the challenges aren't so restricted, there's kind of a pernicious aspect to this idea that you lose points if your interests change from time to time. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of wanted to unpack some of that research and see how it applies to, to a wider world in that chapter. Right. So in many ways, and I'm 
kind of uh, simplifying this. I, I would say that grit would say that quitting equals failure, but you challenge that notion, right? Right. That's right. And and in fact, like there's, you know, one of the studies I thought was cool in that chapter was by the, the Freakonomics yes. uh, economist, where he had people flip a digital coin if they had like a major life question. It could be anything. Should they have a kid? Should they get a tattoo? But the most common question was, should they change their job? Mm. Um, and people, you know, obviously they didn't have to follow this. They could do whatever they wanted, but among people who did follow the coin flip and, and change jobs, those people ended up happier. So the results of this study showed there was a, there was a causal relationship between what the coin showed and what people decided to do. So going on this economics page and flipping the coin did influence whether people decided to change their job and those who did ended up happier. And that's kind of a, symbolic of a lot of the research in that area that shows what you should actually do is kind of set these experiments for yourselves where you try something, see if you like it, see what it teaches you about yourself and your own skills, Mm -hmm. reflect on that, and then keep zigzagging until you find these places where you can uniquely succeed. So you actually should be kind of doing things with an eye toward getting information about Mm -hmm. who you are and, and what you're good at and what you're interested in, and then quit a bunch until you find this spot where, where you uniquely can contribute. It's really fascinating. The two things went through my mind as you were saying that. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're, we're recording this the day after Magic Johnson famously has now infamously, I guess, quit as um, mm-hmm. the general manager, I think is the position of the Lakers. And I'm a huge Laker fan here. So I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It was so crazy. But in his <laughs> in his awkward press conference, which was like crazy man talking, but he kept saying that he wasn't happy, you know, (laughs) and that he wanted to be more free and wanted to be himself. And as crazy as that sounds, it's really not that crazy, (laughs) you know, because Magic is a revered star, you know, and he gets to, he's a colossus that gets to walk amongst all of us, you know. (laughs) He doth bestride the world like a colossus, to quote Shakespeare, right? And he he can't bestride the world like that when he's the president, of the Laker basketball. And I think he misses that, you know, even though I think there's other things going on there. I think magic likes being magic Johnson more than he likes being Irvin Johnson in the public square, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, seems to be choosing that. And who would call him a quitter, right? You think of yes, the various things that's he's, the thing. he's succeeded in. <laughs> yeah. So he's actually <laughs> like, quitting. Oh, right? what a quitter. Yes. This is huge. He's to many people. He's quitting right now. And I wonder if the, you know, if the conversation around that is going to shift with more knowledge about what really happened or if people are going, if there's going to be an acceptance of sometimes you need a certain type of happiness that has nothing to do with these things, you know? To me, the like less courageous thing to do is to stick with something without reflecting on whether it fits you and, Mm -hmm. and moves you towards your goals and your unique contributions. And, and, you know, not to get into like the weeds on this, but, um, in that trouble with too much grit chapter, there's, I go through a little bit of, and simplify very much this, this research that an economist did where he models like career switching is what's called a, a two arm bandit process where a, mm-hmm. a one arm bandit is slaying for a slot machine. Mm-hmm. And the way he sets up the model is pretend you have a person who is, and this is how people go about kind of finding the right fit is pretend you have a person who is in, in front of a row of slot machines and they don't know the algorithm of the slot machine and they don't know the rewards. Basically, what they're tasked with is pulling a bunch of the levers and trying to learn about each one and then figuring out ultimately where they should allot their lever pulls. 
And he uses that as a model for people's career matching, where they try a bunch of things that they don't know much about from the outside, Mm -hmm. but then they get a little information once they pull, and then they start figuring out what to eliminate and where to focus. And it turns out to fit very well the way that people find best career matches. It's really interesting. Career is one of those things that shifted in our culture. My parents' culture, career was something you did to, like, as they would say, put food on the table, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it shifted to be something that brought fulfillment to the individual in the career, you know. Um, Like the fulfillment for my parents' generation was taking care of their family. And it seems like fulfillment in our current place is taking care of yourself, you know, (laughs) the fulfillment of self in that, which is kind of an interesting shift. And I wonder if, you know, in this I'm just speculating, I wonder Mm -hmm. how much of that is when I was going through some Bureau of Labor Statistics data, it suggested that people basically have less sort of pure leisure time, like their work time is less delineated from their leisure time. I think that's a good observation. I think so, because when people choose, it's funny, when I talk to, uh, I've talked to students before on lecturing and that kind of stuff, and I kind of dispel the notion that you should always do for a living what your passion is. And I'm like, that Mm. doesn't always work out. Sometimes it does, and it's great. But sometimes you really can't make a living out of your passion. Sometimes it's best to put your passion on the side as your hobby, to have something to escape from, and then do for a living something that you're skilled at, that you actually can make a living out of, you know. Um, Because there's nothing wrong with having something to go to to get away from something else. But when you're trapped in that one thing for everything, for Christ's sakes, what it draws out of you, you better be sure that that's what you want because it's 24-7, you know. Totally. I mean, in fact, I would suggest that's even like, you know, indispensable to have something like that. And, And what people maybe often don't realize, and one of the reasons why I think these sort of Nobel scientists show up as 20 times, 22 times more likely to have these these meaningful hobbies is that those things do end up informing other things that they do in mm-hmm. many cases. It, it's a, it's a break for them. It's, it's a place to, you know, cl- I think there's a reason like why people often are having their good ideas when they're on a run or when they're in the sh- shower or whatever, it's yeah, like yeah. they're changing That's true. context and that actually aids their thinking. It's not just wasted time, so to speak. Yeah. One of your later chapters is deliberate amateurs. What, what is your point of view in there? That, that I should say is a, is a term coined, and I certainly credit her with it, uh, the art historian Sarah Lewis, who um, studies not just artists, but just creators in general. And she used that term to describe uh, this sort of mindset that she saw among eminent creators. And she notes that the word amateur typically, it didn't mean someone who wasn't good at stuff. Mm-hmm. The origin was someone who loved doing something. Mm-hmm. And I, I use it to talk about a scientist that, that she has researched as well named Andre Geim, who was sort of famous for doing what he called Friday night experiments, where he would get everyone in the lab and they would no funding and they would forget about whatever they had done in the week. And they would just goof around mm-hmm. and like mess around and do uh, silly stuff, whatever piqued their curiosity. And one of those times, they ended up levitating a frog with some frog magnets. And for that, they they won. Andre Gam won the what's called the Ig Nobel Prize, which oh. is for like work that the silliest work of the year. I love that. And in another one of those Friday night experiments, he and colleagues were playing around with ripping pencil lead with scotch tape and found they could get a really thin layer of carbon, and that led to their discovery of the world's first single atom thick. Um, material called graphene for which they won the Nobel Prize. Wow. And so he, so he's the only person who won the Ig Nobel and the Nobel. And he has these incredible way that he speaks about his work. He says, 
it, you know, it feels psychologically unsafe, but I don't want to do the same thing that I did as a grad student. I don't want to do the mm-hmm. same thing every five years. So he said, I like to say that I don't do research, only search, nice. always looking for, for these new things. Mm-hmm. And one of the, his co-winner, this guy Konstantin Novoslov, um, he was at another lab kind of being very specialized and getting more and more specialized. And someone said, this guy's wasting his life over there. Ask Guy if he would take him on. He takes him on. And if you read a profile of him in like the magazine, you know, in the, in the scientific journal Science, the headings are like uh, spreading himself thin, uh, <laughs> starting late, and all this stuff that would seem like it was leading up to be, him being a failure if it wasn't also <laughs> saying that he was like the youngest physics Nobel laureate, you know, in half a century. Wow. Um, and so these, these, what I wanted to show was that even as these, because scientists are very specialized from mm-hmm. the view of the wider public. Right. And so what I wanted to show at the end of the book was that even these professionals who are, you know, from all kind of outside signals, very specialized, can find ways to have these huge advantages by expanding their range and by maintaining this, you know, the, the Zen concept of the beginner's mind, where they're always kind of approaching things like a beginner or doing what, what Andre Geim said, where not doing research, only search. And so that, that was kind of me fleshing out this, this term that, again, that, 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 I, that I took from Sarah Lewis, the, mm-hmm. the art historian, so I didn't make that deliberate amateur term up. And then expanding your range, what you end with, is part of, of what you were just talking about. And does that mean just um, I- expanding your range of, of, of what you should be focusing on in your life, or what do you exactly mean by that? The way I think of it is like in the chapter I wrote about music, where one of uh, a guy I talked to is a teacher and world class in both jazz and classical says he told me have long antennas, hmm. and what he basically meant was what and and this I think you know again I only know about your own work as as a consumer, mm-hmm. but my guess is that you have very long antennas for the world around you, um, and you are collecting materials from the things you are seeing and the things you're reading, the things you're listening to and the people you're talking to. And that goes into your work. And Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that kind of what I meant by that is have these long antennas for the world around you. Like don't get such tunnel vision for what you're doing, even if it's important that you aren't viewing yourself as a work in progress, right? Mm -hmm. Don't be so worried about, um, falling behind that, that you aren't kind of keeping yourself broad and, and learning about yourself. Cause one of my favorite concepts from the book is called the, the end of history illusion, which is this psychological finding that we always recognize that we have changed a lot in the past, but mm-hmm. think we will change less in the future. Hmm. Yes. That is fascinating. Yeah. It leaves a really interesting finding. It's like, if you ask people how much they would pay for tickets to see their current favorite band in 10 years, the average answer is like $129. And if you ask how much they'd pay today to see their favorite band from 10 years ago, the average answer is like $80. <laughs> because we we realize our preferences change, but we expect them now to stay stable. And it's not the case. And so if you aren't approaching yourself as a work in progress and continuing to kind of maintain that curiosity, even as the world sort of tries to track you more narrowly, you're just going to be missing out on on what you could potentially be. So so I like that half long antennas phrase. Yeah, there tends to be, this is a bit of a side comment. I feel like there's always seems to be narcissism of the moment, kind of a, a sports phrase is prisoner of the moment sometimes when you're observing, mm-hmm. like, who's the greatest player? When when we're prisoners of the moment, we usually choose the most recent example of that. You know, it's hard to go back. Mm-hmm. You know? And sometimes I feel like, like, uh, like I like to dispel <laughs> um, conspiracy theories. And the, the one that I hate the most, because I was a huge science nerd growing up, is that people 
many people don't believe we landed on the moon, you know. And I feel that's one of those examples. I call it dumb history, you know, where you feel like <laughs> like there's no way. Yes, but it's it's treating <laughs> history as being um, inferior to, to the present time, you know, that somehow we are better because we are presently here than what came before us. And there's no way certain achievements that we can't imagine now could have happened before us, you know. And the opposite of that is the thinking of, you know, Atlantis and that type of thinking where there's a super history, you know, that type of thing might be the, the inverse yeah. maybe. But dumb history seems to be about this narrow thinking, uh, once again, not taking into account behavior and how people come together and those sorts of things to affect things in ways that maybe we can't imagine today, you know. Like the building of the pyramids is an example of that. You know, It's hard for people to replicate that with what was available then. But that's dumb history to me, that type of thinking, you know. That's really interesting because I, I think about that sometimes when, so sort of in that in that first chapter when I write a little bit about AI mm-hmm. and the, some of the limits of types of artificial intelligence that that I guess some people in Silicon Valley aren't really admitting to. I, I got the feeling while I was doing some reporting there that there's, I don't want to characterize an entire area, but among some some folks in Silicon Valley, there's kind of a disrespect for history. Yeah. Um, in that they're very sure that they are like inventing the world for the first time and they're sort of frontiersmen <laughs> of a better world. Yes. And so many of the issues they're thinking about and talking about have been thought about and talked about and dealt with in ways that could really inform their approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of distressing when they give give history short shrift. Well, it's interesting because um, when it comes to philosophy, you know, many people acknowledge that words that have been written thousands of years ago still are extremely valuable today, you know? So there must have been some kind of human insight that was extraordinary back then, you know, that we have to acknowledge. And if that type of insight was extraordinary, then thinking itself was extraordinary, you know? So it's kind of interesting, you know? And that's like what, what makes us, I think like lots of other animals use, use tools, but we're the ones that iterate on our tools so often. And obviously, you know, we wouldn't, we're just building on all that stuff that came before. So I think sort of not, not having respect for kind of the path is really sort of limits your view. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's just real fascinating. All all of these examples in here, you know, and even just starting out with, with the guy who's training his daughters to be chess champions and actually succeeds, which is kind of interesting. What is the ramification of that type of thing? Yeah, that, that, that chess story, the, the Polgar chess story, this was a, yeah, this was a, a guy who decided he could make like a genius out of, out of any child. And he, um, he hyper-specializes his kids in chess very early on. And I, I take that on as kind of a, a golf-like domain because it turns out that chess is really based on sort of repetitive pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically one of the reasons why there've been like, I don't know, 15 to 20 grandmasters all time who are, I think age 15 or younger. Mm-hmm. And the oldest one is like in their thirties now, because that's a, it, it has developed with the age of computer chess because you can get a lot more pattern study in when oh, you're a wow. kid. Right. Um, and that's an area where you really do, you know, it, do, it is helpful to do a ton of this focus training when you're younger. Right. But the thing is, it also means that it's the kind of domain that is extremely easy to automate. So one of the reasons why chess was one of the first things where computers became a lot better than humans 
was that because it's based on this pattern recognition, computers are much better at that mm-hmm. than humans are. And so when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in 1997, one thing that Kasparov noticed was the chess was the chess computer was way better than him at patterns, even though he'd spent years studying that. What's called tactics in chess, like the little moves you make to gain a gain a local advantage, right. but was less good at strategy, which is the sort of the larger how do you coordinate the battles to win the war. And that gave Kasparov this idea to have freestyle chess tournaments where humans could play with computers and against computers. And the winners of these tournaments have been amateur chess players who know a bit about chess, who know a bit about chess algorithms, and who know a bit about computers, and are good at integrating a bunch of information and and sort of coaching the computers. So they beat the best grandmasters, the best computers, and the best human players with the best computers. And so it turns out that basically they were able to outsource this early specialization skill of pattern recognition and just focus on strategy, this big picture strategy. These teams, these combined human computer teams are called centaurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think this, there are these domains where this early specialization works like chess, but those domains are also the ones that are most based on repetitive patterns, which also makes them the easiest to automate. So I think going forward, those are not the domains you generally want to be focusing on for for the future world of work. <laughs> right. Where where do you think we're going uh, with all of this? Are we going more towards these specialization type of behavior, or do you think the world is learning kind of the lessons of of your book and and that sort of thing? Um, do you have what what is your prognostication? That's a good question. I think it's kind of domain specific. I think in the sports area, we're still we're definitely going in the hyper specialization direction, mm-hmm. um, which makes it even more startling that the typical path to becoming elite is still not uh, hyper-specialization. Maybe that'll change at a certain point when nobody is allowed not to, if it keeps going in that direction, because then there won't be any alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it depends on the domain. I think there is recognition of this in some areas of sort of the, the entrepreneurial world, like with the Santa Fe Institute, you know, was started um, out in New Mexico so that disciplinary boundaries could kind of be out the window and people could teach each other things. And I think there's some recognition of that, but I think there's, I think there's a long way to go. Um, but I do think, you know, I, I see, I guess my antennas are kind of up for it, but like yesterday I was reading, um, you know, an article about Jordan Peele and he was saying, you know what, what really helped me learn timing for horror films was comedy was working in comedy. Uh-huh. So I just used what I learned about timing and transposed it over to horror. And, and I think I'm starting to see more people at least kind of saying things like what helped me over here was really this, this other thing over here. Uh-huh. So I think it sort of depends on the domain, but I hope there will be, you know, there, there's some more of these models like him yeah. where it's not just the tiger story, but also the Roger story that we never really tell that, that's getting a little bit more, um, more play, but, but I think there's a long way to go. I think there's yeah. a long way to go. I think the pressure on most people is still to specialize as early as they possibly can. Yeah. And, and last thought on this, and I appreciate you. I know you have to have to uh, run out right now. So I really appreciate you spending time talking about this because it really is a fascinating book and range comes out in May, I believe. Yep. May 28th. Yeah. May 28th guys. It's, it's so good. Um, it's such a good read. It's, it's one of those things that even if you read it once, you have to read it a couple of times because there's so much information in it, you know, that you're going to want to experience several times. But I wanted to end on a note. I know you're not necessarily a political guy, but, you know, we're we're in an age where we feel it used to be we expected politicians to kind of be in a certain type of political bubble, you know, go a certain route. 
You know, you had to come up through the ranks. But we now have a president that never held office, you know, um, that many people kind of had that as a notion that, why don't we just have a businessman in there? I remember when Ross Perot ran, but nobody really expected Ross Perot to win, you know. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a joke. But now that's a reality. Do you think it, Do you think Donald Trump, and this is not a political question, it's more of a behavioral observational question, uh, by becoming president has kind of changed how we maybe view the political ladder? I do think so. Mm-hmm. I do think so. I think, and I think, you know, we see that in maybe some of the, like, I don't think, you know, with Mayor Pete, like, I think it's pretty unlikely in, in yeah. previous races that that a mayor with that background would already be, you know, a presidential candidate that is drawing significant attention in, like, major magazine features. And I think that's partly because everyone's kind of, like, looking for this sort of outsider now. But mm-hmm. but the but but sort of what, one of the things that, it frightens me and I think relates to some of these things. And of course, like I'm seeing the world through range colored glasses right sure, now because sure, I just sure. finished this project. No problem. But, no, they're good glasses. But it's just that, because in, in chapter 10 of range, I write about like people with political judgment. It's about expert political judgment, the people who can tell developments that are coming. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that those, one of the main traits of those people is like incredible curiosity. And, and this, and I'm not just saying that subjectively when they're studied in these sort of studies that give them fake market research surveys and then see how they pursue follow-up information to track how curious they are about things that even disagree with their own beliefs. They are very curious, even when they end up disagreeing with something. Mm -hmm. And I almost think there's been like a, and they change their mind a lot. Yes. And these things, I think there's been like a streak of incuriousness, Mm -hmm. uh, unwillingness to change one's mind. And then this idea that because someone who, particularly for business, because someone may have had one specialty area in business that they have figured out like the master algorithm to how the world works, um, I think is, can be kind of dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're giving people the credit of having what I would call range without having it, where it's like they, they, they did one thing or they made money in one area, therefore they know how to make everything work, even if they aren't yes. actually curious about right, everything. Right. right. Um, and to me, that is uh, scary. And if that's going to be the message that all these other prospective candidates take that I only have to have done this one other thing and, and therefore I know how to do everything else without yes. having been curious about other things or without having had diverse experience. Expertise you know, by proxy, you know, up, associative, exactly. I mean, associative that a, expertise, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I find that, that, uh, kind of like lionization of, of incuriousness to be, um, counterproductive. Yeah, I feel like there's also people have chosen ideology over problem solving. So anything yeah. that sticks within an ideology is preferred over anything that is just pure problem solving that it, that may incorporate or may be devoid of ideology. Um, does that fall in line? Absolutely. Uh, does, that, does any of this fall in line with your chapter on Fooled by Expertise? Because that's such a provocative title. I love that title. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it's about. It's about this... 20 year long study about people making predictions about mm-hmm. the world. Yes. Right. Um, and it, it had to be 20 years because they had to gather so many predictions to yeah. find out if people were just lucky or unlucky right. versus actual skill. So it was 80,000, 82,000 predictions. And what they found was that people who get very focused on an ideology or even a model of seeing the world or, or even a single question of, you know, of expertise that they devote themselves to mm-hmm. develop very bad judgment. And what's crazy is that as they compile credentials like PhDs and, and things like that, they get worse 
because as they get more information, they're more able to just cherry pick whatever they want uh. to fit their sort of singular view of the world. And, and I find that really scary. So it wasn't about whether or not they're intelligent or whether or not they have experience. It was about their habits of mind. Uh. And so I, I found that, you know, kind of frightening. And I, and I think some of it goes back to, and they had this feeling that, you know, th- there is this one theory of how the world works. They would get fixated on it. They were, of course, very specialized in their type of thinking. And I think it gets back to something you were getting at before, which mm. is this sort of zero-sum thinking about the world, right? Like, if we think about, I don't know, if, if, if like, the parties think about government as zero-sum, I don't even know, like, how we have a government. Like, how do you how do you have a civil society if everyone is thinking about it in a zero-sum way? Yeah. So, um, I find that very concerning. Yeah, me too. I, I've... I come up with my own little philosophy, but like I've divided thinking, I call it creation and survival. And I say in survival, what you do is you form an opinion about something and you spend all your time collecting evidence for that opinion. And in creation, you discover the truth about something and you and you spend your time walking in the continual abundance of discovery. You know, so you're, you're not guided by opinion, you're just guided by a search for something, you know. Um, where the other, totally. the other is just a, a collection exercise, you know. <laughs> totally, so exactly. I mean, so you you would be what what the researcher did that work in the chapter calls a fox, as opposed who knows who, who roams widely in gathering information, as yeah. opposed to the hedgehog who who burrows down. Yeah, very good. David, thank you so much. I could talk to you literally for hours. This is such in my wheelhouse of things that I like, you know. And I love that you. Uh, Got Malcolm Gladwell really good too. That that makes me happy. Um, <laughs> Malcolm's so much fun. Now, I had him on my podcast, and I gave him so much crap about satire and his take on it, and I kind of deconstructed his take and everything. It was really a lot of fun. And then we argued about golf of all I, I things. Love my, too, yeah. I love arguing he's with great. him. He's so great because I know he's smarter than I can ever hope to be. So I love it when I can upend his thinking on something, and it's just really a lot of fun. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. I mean, he's a brilliant, you know. Unbelievably clever, but like he will change his mind. He will. Get him. He's at, he has so much humility around that, which makes him great. That's why I love him even more. You know, yeah, he's really yeah, great. It's wonderful. The, and, and and by the way, it's just it's awesome. I mean, you know, fan of your work from afar. Oh, thank you. Really a treat for me to be able to talk to you. You know, if we're ever in the same place, same time, I'd love to buy you a beer or a meal. And, and yeah, that's what I call range, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the book is range, David. Thank you so much for being on Black and There, David Epstein, everybody. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.